All right, we're in Matthew chapter 5. And in Matthew 5, 21 and 22, when Jesus speaks in this passage, he's, he, he begins a statement, sort of a, a formula in, in that we're, we're going to see repeated throughout Matthew 5, a formula in his words where he says, you have heard it said, or as you see there, you have heard that it was said to those of old, there in verse 21, but then verse 22, but I say to you. That kind of language is characteristic six different times here in Matthew chapter 5. He will say something along those lines. You've heard this, but I say this. Um, And in each instance when he says, you have heard this, he then quotes a part of the Old Testament. He says some command, something that they had read in the Old Testament. The only exception to that is the the last one, the sixth one, where he says, you have heard it said. And he quotes a part of the Old Testament, but then there's something else that, that... other teachers have added to it that is not part of the Old Testament. This this is radical, as I said to you last week, that he's saying this, because here is this new rabbi, as far as the audience is concerned on that hillside, here's this relatively unknown quantity, who is saying, you've heard it said, and then quoting from God's law, which, which made sense to them, but I say, as if to say, what you've heard, what you've been taught, what you, what you know about this is in some way inadequate. I'm going to tell you more. And so that's why last week we spent time on verses 17 to 20, because that's where Jesus makes it clear that he has a, the highest of views of God's word. When he speaks of the law and the prophets, he's speaking about the Old Testament, and he makes it very clear in verse 17, I have not come to abolish the law, I've come to fulfill it. To use our language today, I've not come to deconstruct God's word, I have come to fulfill it. And so he establishes right from the, from the get-go here that God's word is holy and right and true and authoritative and have no question about that, but I have come to fulfill it. And he's going to begin this series of examples in which he explains that. Now, when we think of Jesus fulfilling the law and the prophets, fulfilling the Old Testament, we tend to think in terms of primarily um, sort of fulfillment of prophecy, Uh, the prophets who foretold Jesus' coming, and and that's fulfilled now in Jesus. Or the Old Testament law and the feasts and the sacrifices that all prefigured the the need for a sacrifice. They displayed the need for a perfect sacrifice, and so they, they looked forward, and Jesus is the fulfillment of that. Jesus is that. He is the greater Moses. He came to ratify a covenant that has better promises. He is the long-awaited deliverer. He is the Messiah. He is the servant that Isaiah is looking forward to. All of that is true. But there's also a sense when he speaks of, I have come to fulfill it, that we we just touched on last week, but that's really going to be the the heartbeat of what he does here throughout Matthew chapter 5, and that is he is fulfilling the law by how he teaches and applies the law by how he takes it and says, this this has been your understanding of the law. Let me deepen that. Let me cause you to to be more convicted by the law. Let me make you think a little bit harder about how you obey the law. Prior to the coming of Jesus, two things were true about the the law, about God's law and its relationship to the Jewish people. First, from the rabbi's point of view, the law was largely taught on an external basis. It was largely focused on appearances. It was primarily to say, here's a checklist. Here are the do's and do nots. Here are the things that you you do if you want to be obedient and the things that you, you should not do. It's kind of a list. And the better you follow it, then the more righteous you are. So if you have 
if you've never murdered anyone, if you've never committed adultery, if you're in the synagogue on the Sabbath and you present the right offerings and sacrifices and you, you sort of walk through these steps, then you are scoring points that are, are making you righteous. That was basically the rabbinical teaching. It's giving you at least the appearance of righteousness. People can see that you're a, you're a good person. What was also true, not only were the, the rabbis distorting the law in the sense of primarily focusing on appearances, but what was also true going way back in the Old Testament is that God's concern was always about man's heart. That, that while God gave commands that were to be obeyed and lived out in word and deed, God's primary focus was on the heart. Why are you doing the things you do? What, what's the desire? What's the motive? Is it out of devotion to the Lord or is it out of keeping up appearances in front of others? In Deuteronomy 26, after Moses has given a, a long litany of explanations of how the commandments apply in terms of laws that govern the lives of Israelites at that point, he's talked about sexual immorality and inheritance rights and treatment of servants and all of these different things. And, and at the end of all that, in Deuteronomy 26, he says, verse 16, this day the Lord your God commands you to do these statutes and rules. That's kind of where the rabbi stopped at that point. Sure, just do them. You shall therefore be careful to do them with all your heart and with all your soul. In other words, don't just give lip service to these things. Don't just go through the motions on these things. Don't just show up, do what you got to do, because this is what I got to do, because these are the do's and the don'ts, and I'm making sure that I achieve at least eight out of ten of them if I can. You know, I'm just trying to score as many points as I can. He's saying, don't, don't do that. You do these things because you love the Lord, because you are devoted to the Lord and you are worshiping the Lord and your obedience to him is an act of worship. It's out of your submission to him and then your love for other people who are created in his image that you do these things. You get to the first century and by that time the attitude is just that, that, that wholehearted obedience has been replaced by this endless list of rules. The, the Old Testament commandments have been taken by the rabbis and they've written the Mishnah, which is just an elaboration on all this, all the do's and don'ts, how these things look, and just trying to, to create almost a, a rule book that only some could ever even possibly adhere to, which is why the scribes and Pharisees were looked to as sort of the superheroes of righteousness, because they, they seemed to keep all of these things, and the rest of us were just struggling along just to try to follow the Big Ten, right? So... What we're about to read Jesus say when he says, you've heard, but I say, is not some kind of radical reinvention of God's law. And that's why Jesus has established from the beginning his view of scripture. He's not trying to, to give them something that has never been heard before. This is Jesus condemning the religious leaders for having sown this idea that you can do this by just keeping externals. You can just score points before God by doing these certain deeds and everything will be fine. And, and Jesus is now bringing that to bear and showing the, how false that is, that they have convinced people that you can be right before God by simply being a good Jew who obeys the rules. That, that was pretty much the attitude. That's why the words of Jesus at the beginning of this section and at the end of this section are so convicting and so startling. I mean, he puts bookends 
on, on this section of examples that we're going to be looking at that start with in verse 20. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Startling, because again, scribes and Pharisees kept, they thought, kept all those rules. Your righteousness must exceed that. And then at the end, verse 48 of chapter 5, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. That's, that's startling. What, what does he mean by that? And yet God's standard has never been mere lip service. In, in Matthew 15, Jesus, in a confrontation with the scribes and Pharisees, goes back and he quotes Isaiah. Look at what he says in Matthew 15, verse 7. You hypocrites, Pharisees and scribes, well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. The, the, the people had been hearing the law of God, but only as it had been watered down into the rules of men. Only as it had been turned into a list of do's and do nots and box checking sort of activities. And so they are attending services, they're giving offerings, they're doing deeds, because they're convinced that if you do enough of this, be consistent about it, that you'll be okay. You will then have righteousness from God. When all the while, what, what Jesus condemns them of is, your heart is not engaged in this. You are not loving the Lord in this. You are simply jumping through hoops for the sake of appearances. You and I know that's not just a problem for first century Judaism. We all, we all wrestle with that. That sense that, what do people think of me? How, how do I appear in this? Am I serving enough? Am I doing enough? Are people noticing something? Are they noticing what I'm trying to do here? Uh-oh, did they see that? Did they hear that? Did... All these things that we're concerned about in terms of appearance, which has value in terms of testimony, but not when that becomes paramount to understanding how my heart is before God in private. When God sees me and God searches me and God knows my motives and desires and thoughts, when that becomes secondary to how do I look in front of others, then we're right in the same place. Jeremiah 17.10, I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. So as we, as we press forward through chapter 5 of this Sermon on the Mount, we're going to see six examples in which Jesus applies God's law. Here he is fulfilling God's law, and he's taking it, and he's, he's using this as a teaching opportunity to take something that they know about God's law, but now to take them deeper, if you will, to take them into a, a clearer application of it. So I want to go through this, kind of give you a grid to think about these things. He's going to talk about anger, immorality, divorce, lying, retaliation, and dealing with enemies. All stuff that Nobody here has any problems with, right, at any point? No, he's, he's speaking to things that, that speak very clearly to our lives. And he's going to go through these six that are all addressed in God's law. But with each of these, what he does in his role of fulfilling the law is he does not, and let me give you, a, I'll give you a grid of three things that, that I think we're going to see in each of these. First thing he does is expose. He exposes the external sort of point-scoring, man-pleasing Here's the, here's the bare minimum. Just do this, 
and you look good and you'll be righteous. And so he's going to expose that um, that, that sort of principle that, that the rabbis have taught. Secondly, he's going to examine the internal heart obedience that is completely missing from their teaching. In settling for this low bar of activity, of outward appearance, God's righteousness is demanding honor and obedience from the heart. You've lost that. You're, you're simply doing the externals. And then what he'll do last is explain or teach. This is what it looks like to be in my kingdom. This is what righteousness that exceeds the scribes and Pharisees actually looks like, because that's the premise for this section, is that your righteousness must exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees, to which the audience is thinking, I don't, I don't even know where that begins, I don't know how to do that. And he's gonna now show some examples of what that looks like. In fact, as we'll see, he's ultimately looking to teach them the, what he means in the conclusion when he says, you therefore must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. You, therefore, must be perfect. Second, therefore, in Matthew chapter 5. We saw the one last week in, in verse 19. Those who, who lessen the law, um, therefore. So if you, you look back at 17, 18, he's talking, um, the, the law stands, it's established, will all be accomplished. Verse 19, therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments will be called least in the kingdom of God. So you must have a high view of God's word. Therefore, if you do not, it is disobedience to him. This is the other, therefore, and it's in Matthew 5, 48. It comes on the tail end of a section about dealing with your enemies, loving your enemies, and so it applies specifically there, but it's really a conclusion. Matthew 5, 48 is the conclusion to this whole section that started on the front end with the bookend that said, righteousness more than the scribes and Pharisees, therefore be perfect as your Father in heaven is. So if, if there's any doubt at the front end that Jesus means business, he can't possibly mean that we're gonna behave better than the scribes and Pharisees, can he? He ends it by saying, therefore, be perfect as your Father in heaven is. Suddenly, the bar has gone even higher than the scribes and Pharisees. He's now pointing them back to God himself. And so he's going to give them six examples of that. And again, this is not, this is not some radical rewrite of the law. You go back to the Torah, and you go back to the book of Leviticus, and it says there, and the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, speak to all the congregation of the people of Israel and say to them, you shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. What Jesus commanded in Matthew 5, 48, to be perfect, was another way of saying what God had told his people more than a thousand years earlier. Don't lower the bar. Don't, don't, don't dismiss this. Don't say, well, that's God, and, and I have no responsibility here. I can never possibly be God, which is true. I can't. And so therefore, I'll just sort of settle for something that looks decent, that other people will see. Because in the kingdom of God, sincere obedience rooted in worship of the Lord is what we are called to. A lot of discussion amongst commentators about Matthew 5.48, the, the be perfect, and, and the meaning of that word for perfect. It's the Greek word teleos has the idea of blameless, without blemish, so, so perfect is an apt in, uh, translation of that, but also has the idea of wholeness, completeness, sort of reaching the finish line, reaching the goal. It, it really summarizes, that, that verse and that word, it summarizes what we're going to see today and then the next few weeks as Jesus teaches about this righteousness that pleases God. True righteousness seeks to imitate him. Not just in deed, but in heart desire and in motive. It is arising out of worship. 
that is not too high of a bar. That is the design, and that, that's why this is part of the Sermon on the Mount. This is the King's Manifesto. This is Jesus saying, you come after me as my disciple. You are in my kingdom. This is what it looks like as followers of mine. You are to pursue this. Now, let's remember where we, where we ended last week before we get stopped here and think, well, this, this is starting to sound like a works-oriented brand of salvation. I've got I've to work in order to get saved. Remember Romans 8 that we looked at last week? That This is not a check the boxes, do these things, and then you'll receive righteousness. That's what the rabbis were teaching. What Romans 8 then fills in as the gospel is, is, is filled out and, and poured into all of this is that that righteousness comes to us by grace through faith. It is the, the work of God's grace to save us and to give us the righteousness that is Jesus's, that the perfect righteousness of Jesus that he, that he takes from, by dying in our place on the cross and now imputes to us, imparts to us. And so by his death and resurrection, he is able to give to us of his righteousness so that we now, by the power of the Spirit and by the grace of God, can walk in that righteousness. So it's a position in that we have been given a right standing before God, and it's now a living it out, which is what Jesus is talking about here in Matthew 5, as we live out what that righteousness looks like. This is for those who have been rescued and made part of his kingdom. So um, you are now, by God's grace, empowered to live this way. All of that then means Matthew 5, 48 is for us as believers, call for us to follow Jesus and to be blameless. It, it will never be perfect on this side of eternity. But that is the mark to which we have been calling because of God's spirit and his word and the strength that he gives to us in order to follow after Christ. And it fits, as you'll see now, with what Jesus is teaching in each of these six examples. In, in all of these, the emphasis is on, this must come from your heart. The repeated refrain we hear from Jesus throughout the Gospels is the words of our mouth expose what is already in our what? Our hearts, right? It's not just an outburst. You can't claim that, oh, I, I don't know where that came from. That's the, the, the typical popular figure sort of apology that we hear nowadays. That's not me. Well, no, actually, you said that. And, and, and that doesn't work. It doesn't work in marriage. It doesn't work in the family when we say, I, that's not me. Well, no. That was in my heart because it came out of my mouth. Jesus says that repeatedly. And so he's, he's stressing here in each of these, it is about a heart that is devoted to him. And from out of that flow, then, the things that he's going to teach here. And so we're going to go over these six sections. We'll just do the first one today, which is anger. Next week, we'll do um, lust and divorce. But we'll primarily focus in on the um, truth-telling one, the oath section might be the heading. And the reason I'm just going to overview lust and divorce is because we preached on both of those passages this past summer in the series on sex and sexuality. So if you're new to us and new to this uh, study in the Sermon on the Mount, um, we urge you, if you have time this week, go back and listen to those sermons on lust and divorce. We took them right largely out of these passages. Uh, so we'll key in then primarily next week on oaths or truth-telling. So for today, let me start in Matthew 5, 21. And he picks up on a particular topic that I think we can all find connection with. Matthew 5, 21. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. 
Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. First thing Jesus does is to expose the the partial sort of man-pleasing point-scoring kind of activity that the Jewish teachers had limited God's law to. In this case, it is just don't kill anybody. If you don't kill anybody, you're good. That's, that's all you got to do. Sixth commandment stuff, just don't murder anybody, and you've got it covered, right? We're for that, right? Murder's forbidden. We agree with that. It, it, if, if he stopped at verse 21 and paused, everybody on the hillside would say, amen. Nobody should murder. We don't like murder. It's evil. We agree. We're all on board. And then he has to go and add verse 22. Let's not skip over the murder part. Let's just make sure that we we emphasize what Scripture emphasizes here. We know from Genesis 1 that, that God's prohibition on murder is rooted in the fact that human life is created in the image of God. Each of you, all human beings, are made in the image of God. Therefore, human life is sacred. It is valuable. It has integrity. It is important because it is created by God. And so God judges the the murder, starting with Cain killing Abel in Genesis chapter 4. Then in Genesis chapter 9, he gives that principle that we'll find repeated in Romans 13, which is there is such a severity, such evil in the taking of human life that the punishment for that can even be the death penalty. You shall not murder. There seem to be three situations in which because of man's sin, God permits the taking of human life. Just like when we talked about divorce a couple months ago, this is God accommodating man's sin, if you will, allowing for man's sin. And so there's, there, there seem to be permission in the case of justice or punishment For a governing authority that is justly taking a life in punishment, there seemed to be an allowance for self-defense or for the protection of others, and then that would extend then to to warfare, where there is protection of the innocent, where there is a a larger-scale protection of innocent lives. This command is none of these. This is murder. This is unjust killing. This is any of the the stuff that we can think of, the the governing authority who wrongly uh, abuses his authority and kills someone, the domestic violence case, which escalates into someone getting killed, the crime on the street that turns into the destruction of a human life, or even the taking of the innocent life of the unborn in abortion. It's all part of this do not murder. And and his point is those who murder face judgment. It, It should be on a horizontal plane in a court, but certainly God is making it clear that he is a just judge. There will be judgment. Of that, he is assuring us. So the command is right and true, and Jesus is not lessening it. But he's now beginning to to make this point. To everybody on the hillside who said, you've heard it said, you shall not murder, and saying, yep, we're for that. And then all of a sudden, Jesus' audience is confronted. Well, there's more to the sixth commandment. There's something here that maybe you haven't thought about before. There's the heart sort of motive issue that's going on here. If the totality of your standard is that murder is bad and people who kill, all that's true, Jesus is now about to expose you as having righteousness that's on the same plane as the scribes and Pharisees. If your attitude is that's that's it, that's the only thing he's talking about here. Because in verse 22... He says, if you if you've settled for the sixth commandment, only meaning don't ever kill someone, 
then you have settled for the very bottom, minimum, bottom line here. Let's examine the heart. Let's get down to motives. Let's get down to what goes on in terms of desires that you and I wrestle with. All right, here's, here's where we start with the questions that apply this, that, that make it a little harder. Have you been angry with someone this past week? Have you insulted anyone? Is there, is there a person who, when you think of that person, your blood pressure starts to tick up just a little bit? You start to simmer when you think about that person. Did you, uh, did you call that other driver an idiot? Did you commiserate with colleagues at work or with classmates about that stupid boss or teacher or whoever it is? Did you curse someone under your breath or mock someone behind their back? Did you raise your voice in anger or in the midst of a conversation that was just starting to escalate, finally just yelled, shut up, or threw your hands in the air and just disgust and walked out of the room to, to make it clear that you were angry? Are we all good? Are we all pass on this? Or are we convicted at this point? Yeah, we're all in this. Did any of your words, any of the words that rolled off your lips this past week, were they meant to hurt in any way? Were they meant to poke? Were they meant to inflict something? Pastor and counselor Robert Jones writes this, anger takes many forms, some of which have specific terms of their own, displeasure, frustration, annoyance, fury, rage, resentment, wrath, and so on. Whatever we call it, we all experience it and express it. Anger is arguably the most common problematic emotion that people feel. It is universal, prevalent in every culture and experienced by every generation. No one is isolated from its presence or immune to its poison. It permeates all of us and hurts our most intimate relationships. It's a given part of our fallen human fabric. Matthew 5.22 Jesus warned that sinful anger is a just and true application of the sixth commandment. That we are guilty of the sixth commandment by our thoughts and our words and even actions that are far less than actually killing someone. Because again, the, the principle still stands. Why does the sixth commandment stand? Because man is created in the image of God. And so to destroy a human life is to attack at the image of God. And so to curse another human life, to say you fool, to insult, to be angry at unjustly. It, it is, it's the same sort of thing. We are attacking at one who is created in the image of God. God despises mocking and holding other people in contempt. He hates insults. He judges us as guilty when we are internally simmering against someone else. Let's be clear here that, that there's a difference in consequences between murdering someone and being angry at someone and calling them a fool. There's a clear difference in the outcome. There is not a difference in guilt before God. Jesus is saying the sixth commandment applies this way. And if you've done this, if you've simmered at someone, if you've called them a fool, if you've mocked them, if you've held them in contempt, even when it's not a shouting, kicking, fist-throwing, cursing sort of anger, the simple mockery of an insult or the dismissive statement of, you're stupid, is doing exactly what Jesus speaks of. It is attacking the image of God in that person. It is 
disobeying God, it is violating the sixth commandment. Jesus has exposed first man's low bar of righteousness. He's examined our sinful hearts and helped us see this stuff that brews inside of us that may or may not get voiced. And now he's going to explain true righteousness. I want to read verse 23 to 26 because this is now kind of the, if you take the New Testament pattern of put off and put on, this will be the put on. And what he does is he gives two sort of vignettes here, two illustrations to help us get an attitude here about what what true righteousness desires. So verse 23. So if, if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift, therefore, before the altar. First, be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. First one. Second one. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and be put in prison. Truly, I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. This is what Jesus will do in each of these six examples throughout chapter five is, is expose, examine, gets to the heart of the matter. And then he will explain and say, let me show you. You're baffled by this Righteousness that exceeds the scribes and Pharisees. Let me show you what living out righteousness looks like. Here's what God requires. Here's the, the principle, if you will, behind the, the command. Bloodshed is not the only telltale sign of violation of the sixth commandment. And so now let me illustrate for you what it looks like to obey it. First illustration, he says, you're, you're going to present your gift at the altar. Put yourself in the sandals of the Galilean, uh, the person from Galilee who's gone down to Jerusalem. They've traveled the 80 miles or so. They've brought their offering. It is their prescribed offering that they are to bring and worship. They have gotten to Jerusalem. They have gotten to the temple. They have come to the altar. They are about to put their, their, their gift down, their offering down. And suddenly something in their conscience says, remember, so-and-so is really upset with you. Remember how you heard that they, they think that you lied to them last week? Remember when you, you said that behind their back and they've heard about it? Something in your conscience is saying somebody has something against me and you are reminded of that. There's something that they've perceived, that that other person has perceived, that is causing a lack of peace in your relationship with that person. There's something there. In that moment, Jesus says, put down your offering Go and be reconciled. Two imperative verbs in here. Go, be reconciled. Put the offering down. Stop what you are about to do. Turn around and travel the 80 miles back and find that brother or sister and say, I think you've got something against me. I, I, I think I might have said something that offended you. Somebody told me that you're upset at me. Let's talk about it. He's, he's speaking here in terms of urgency. Someone believes you have contempt toward them, or you haven't been honest with them, or you've sinned against them in some way. Interesting thing in verse 23 is he uses very general language. Has something against you? Well, Jesus, that could be just about anything. Isn't there some threshold here of evidence or witnesses or something like that? No, there's a perception here that somebody has something against you. It's important as brothers or sisters in Christ to go and to say, hey, did I do something? Did I say something? Help me out here. What's happening in our relationship? Ask some questions. Start a conversation because peace between brothers and sisters in Christ is so important in God's kingdom that a specific act of worship 
is put on hold while reconciliation is pursued. Carson writes this, it's more important to be cleared of offense before all men than to show up for Sunday morning worship at the regular hour, forget the worship service, and be reconciled to your brother, and only then worship God. Men love to substitute ceremony for integrity, purity, and love, but Jesus will have none of it. Now listen, this is not, don't ever come back to church again. You know, it's just always got something outstanding, so I can't come to church. It's not what that's saying. But by all means, if I know something clearly is there and I've not pursued it, I need to make that a matter of priority. And in fact, he ups the urgency in the next two verses with 25 and 26. It's clear from verse 26 he's talking about a debt that you have paid the last penny. And and, and what he's using here is the case of a debtor who clearly owes money and the person to whom he owes the money is on the verge of reporting him and turning him into the authorities, and he's going to get sent off to debtor's prison. This is not meant to change subjects here. This is an illustration Jesus is using. He's not giving legal or financial counsel necessarily, although there's certainly good counsel here about debt and its consequences that we could draw out of this. But his main point is, if you're in this situation, and you owe money, and you know that they're going to come knock on your door and take you to prison... What do you do? You start figuring out how to pay that person back. You, you go to that person and you sit down and work out a payment plan. You, you borrow some money or you do something, but, but you, you're urgent about it. And in the context, that's what he's saying here when he says, come to terms quickly at the beginning of verse 25. The New American Standard says, make friends quickly. The Greek word is benevolent or be kind or think well of another person. It's another imperative there at the beginning of verse 25. Come to terms quickly. The point here is not so much about avoiding prison as it is make things right now. Don't just sit on this. Don't just ignore it. Don't just hope it'll go away. Don't allow a foothold for anger now to grow. Make it your priority as a follower of Jesus Christ to pursue this matter and seek reconciliation. The limitation on this is what Paul wrote in, in Romans 12, 18. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. There is some point at which you may be up against someone who is entirely belligerent, who has no desire to reconcile with you, who only wants to make matters worse with you. Scripture says, as far as it depends on you, do everything in your power to pursue peace, pursue reconciliation, be Christ-like, be humble, own what you've done, acknowledge all that, but at some point, if, if that person is digging their heels in and they want no part of reconciling with you, then that, that's all you can do. That, be content at that point and, and pray to God that he would turn hearts in this and bring reconciliation. The more I, I was thinking about these verses this week, the more I thought it seem like a good application for us to, to have communion today because we always, during communion, we point in 1 Corinthians 11 to, to Paul's reminder to examine yourself before you take part in communion because of the very situation in Corinth where there's division. There's people who are sinning against one another and he's saying, don't, don't just come and do communion as if none of that matters. Go and be reconciled. And, and, and so I just thought it might be good for us to do that today because it's just this is a call from Jesus to, to make reconciliation a priority. Paul picks up on the urgency of that in Ephesians 4.26 when he says, do not let the sun go down on your anger. Most married couples have 
heard that verse, have lived out that verse at one time or another, the, the end of the day sort of, <sighs> I know what Jesus said. I know, you know it's Ephesians 4.26 here. Don't let the sun go down in your anger. Somebody's got to humble themselves at some point and go, all right, let's have a conversation. This was not a good day. Let's talk. It's usually Robin, probably more than it's me, but um, you know how that goes, right? Because he says, to do otherwise is to what? To give Satan a foothold. It, it, it's to take that, whatever that break was, whatever that angry moment was, and to allow Satan to grow that wedge, to allow it to go overnight and carry on and draw you further apart. At the heart of Jesus' warning here is the need to take anger and division seriously. Okay, you've never murdered anyone. Good on you. Have you held contempt for somebody? Have you insulted? Have you mocked? Have you thought that someone that believed you sinned against, that, that, that they some, they're holding something and you shrugged it off? L listen, the obligation here, when he says this, that you, you think you've been accused, you think somebody has something against you, so you need to go to the accuser at that point. And that's, that's the one direction of this. The other direction is Matthew 18 which says, if you think your brother has sinned against you, go to your brother to be reconciled. So whether you are the accused or the accuser, the idea in scripture is you should be meeting on the way to each other. You should both be so desirous of reconciliation that your aim is to come and meet together and to reason about this and to, to, to figure out what's true and to, to lay the accusation out and to confess sin and to give forgiveness and to enjoy this pursuit of peace. Because the kingdom of Jesus, we've already seen in the Beatitudes, is to be a kingdom of peacemakers. People who love reconciliation, who love to see people who are at odds brought together because the reality is we're sinners. We're in a fallen world. We are gonna tick each other off. We are gonna stir one another up. We are gonna antagonize each other. The beauty as believers in Jesus Christ is we've got this wonderful gift of confession repentance and forgiveness that enables us to, to find peace again and to live in peace with one another. That's our calling. That's what makes us different. It's not just to, to be like the world and say murder's bad, okay? Our devotion to the Lord Jesus Christ is what drives us to loving a unity and a peacefulness that says, I'm not tolerating that kind of anger, that kind of contempt, that kind of mockery. I can't, that, I follow a savior who humbled himself and divested himself of all the prerogatives and privileges of heaven in order that he might come and give his life as a ransom for me and for my sin. Ought not I humble myself before you and say, I think I did something to offend you here. Help me to see this and, and please forgive me. That's our calling as believers, as brothers and sisters in Christ, to, to enjoy the sweet fruit of peacemaking and reconciliation. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the clarity with which your word again speaks to our hearts, pointing out this shared experience for all of us of anger, Lord, there are, there are clear instances in Scripture where there is sin and there is evil and there is an appropriate sense of, of anger toward that evil 
but Father, I confess, I'd, most of mine, if not all of mine, most, most of ours as brothers and sisters in Christ usually, usually is not righteous. It's selfish, it's sinful, it's wanting my own way. Father, I thank you for your word saying that we don't, we don't get a pass on this. We don't get to say I'm just an angry person or brought up by angry parents or lots of anger around me and so that's just the way I am. Thank you for the clarity with which Jesus has spoken and said these things are not, not fitting for those who are in his kingdom that we are called to be a people who love peace and reconciliation, who love to see disputes resolved by the confession of sin and the giving of forgiveness. Father, I pray again that if there's anyone here this morning who is not trusting in Jesus Christ alone, pray that they would not be fooled into thinking that somehow this is just a a box-checking activity, that if they just uh, are less angry, more gentle, that that will be enough to, to earn their way into heaven. We, we are convinced from what Scripture says over and over again that Jesus Christ is the only perfect one. He came and took our sin on himself, died on the cross in our place, and rose again and conquered sin and death so that we might come to him as sinners, as broken people, as angry people, and come and ask for forgiveness and receive it generously. Lord, please be at work in the life of our church as a body of believers, we, as brothers and sisters who are near to each other, who spend time with each other. Lord, we will, you know, we will find ways to irritate each other. And so we are praying that your spirit would continuously prompt us toward slowing down in those moments that might otherwise provoke angry thoughts or words. Cause us to slow down and ask for your help and ask for your grace that we might respond more like our Savior. Thank you for the grace evidenced in your Son in coming for sinners and in sacrificing himself for us. Now we pray, Lord, for your spirit to help us to be humble and gentle, gracious and forgiving and confessing, and to make these things part of our homes, how we do our marriages, how we do our friendships, how we do our parenting, how we engage with people at work, how we do life as a body of believers. Might those qualities that are found in that pursuit of peace, might they mark us. Might they point people back to you as our Savior. In your name we pray. Amen.